0: Steve Price. Steve Price. Hey, Hey. Steve. Shock jock Steve Price. I don't like shock jock, by the way. I think um, Price is 100% right. Well, Steve joins us now. Australia has state of origin, rugby league, the AFL Grand Final and the Melbourne Cup. But every October, the regional town of Bathurst becomes the centre of attention when the V8s take on Mount Panorama to compete in the Bathurst 1000. It's the quintessential Australian sporting event, and our guest in profile for On the Record this episode won there an extraordinary six times. Mark Scaife talks about winning on the mountain, being abused by fans for beating Holden, and talks about his near death experience on the track in Adelaide, saved from a deadly fire by some of his competitors. Accident. Our oh, Colin Bond hard on the brakes and his Mark Scape. upside down. Look, in Australia, when I was growing up in the uh, 60s and 70s, I guess like any other young bloke at the time, your sporting passions were, if you lived in the southern states, probably the AFL. If you're in the northern states, it was the NRL in winter. Uh, and as a nation back then, we were pretty good at things like cricket and tennis. Still good at cricket, not so good at tennis, but Every year, just as the footy codes wound up in late September, often the very next weekend, we all became riveted by the Bathurst weekend, a motor race on a, a mad, crazy circuit around Mount Panorama, which, of course, is in western New South Wales, a few hours out from Sydney. And I had a particular interest in this because my father uh, was a lifetime Holden dealer. He benefited from that old adage around Holden, Holden wins on Sunday and they sell on Monday, which is all very true, particularly in in relation to Commodores. Uh, Our Bathurst Sunday started really early, as the race used to, and we spent the best part of eight hours glued to the TV. It was fantastic. Our guest on the latest episode of On the Record won that race six times, spanning 19 years, which is an achievement in itself. He's now, of course, a media regular, hosting and commentating Supercars for Fox Sports. He's also heavily involved in the design and promotion of the sport. He, of course, is Mark Scaife. Welcome. Thanks, Steve. Been a few years since win on Sunday, sell on Monday, but it used to work, (laughs) let me tell you. Well, it was a
1: massive facet of the industry, isn't it? And, um, you know, I've often said that we are the sport of the industry. Not many sports can say that. And, um, you know, your adage around the win on Sunday, sell on Monday, was basically tradition of of selling cars in this country. Way back in those 50s and 60s and even into the early 70s, cars were driven to the racetrack uh, and more often than not, if you had a win on the Sunday afternoon, then certainly the dealerships were full uh, the next day to buy a Monaro or a Falcon or a Nissan G D R or a Commodore.
0: Or a Tirana XU1. Or
1: a a Tirana XU1, exactly.
0: (laughs) It really did work, and uh, wouldn't we be laughing, Mark, if we had parked in our garages a nice GDHO or a Tirana XU one right now, which we could uh, have restored and sell?
1: Yeah, well, that that is a very good point. But if you actually went and drove one, Steve, um, I can promise you, it, it, it'll it'll take your excitement factor <laughs> away very quickly. There's, there's shocking yes. things up and how they how they did 500 miles or you know thousand k's as uh, the race progressed uh, in those days. It was pretty. Uh, pretty tough, and, and blokes like Moffat who you know basically did the whole race by themselves.
0: I uh, don't think I'm exaggerating here, Mark, and, I mean, obviously uh, your passion is motorsport, but I'd put the Melbourne Cup and Bathurst probably, I reckon, as our most iconic sports events, but even bigger than the grand final. Probably only the Boxing Day test, I reckon, would force its way in there.
1: I often call our race a Stop the Nation Day in Australian sport. Um, because if you think about the fringe viewership, there's a, there's a hardcore, you know, million or one and a half million people who basically don't miss Bathurst ever. But there's also been almost double that in terms of people who are more fringe viewers. They don't watch it for the eight hours that you spoke of, but they tune in and out through the day. You know, they've got the barbecue going. They're doing a few jobs. They come back in every hour or so. And especially they see the first hour and the last hour and, and, As the the race has evolved, the last hour has been just unbelievable over the last 15 years or so.
0: I'm a lot older than you, and I can actually still remember watching the race in in black and white, but my memories are that it used to start a lot earlier, and it was sort of uh, a foggy Sunday morning, and you had to get up really early to, to get the start of the race. Is my memory fading on me, or is that right?
1: No, I it's pretty right, but I, I'm the same as you. It was like a Christmas morning for me. I yes, would, uh, I, I would get up, at uh, and the coverage would start at seven and the traditional race start was 10 o'clock. Um, so we, we now, because the, the race is much faster, roughly six and a bit hours now, uh, we start it later so that we optimize our viewership and the number of eyeballs watching late in, late in the afternoon. So, um, and we would run the race right into the news. In fact, there's been races through the course of history that we've had to put the news back, uh, to finish the race. So, uh, your memory is uh, 100% correct.
0: You had no choice about whether you were going to get up and watch it because, uh, I have done some research, which I know will surprise you. Um, but <laughs> your dad, Russell was actually a motor racer.
1: Yeah, dad, uh, we had automotive businesses. My grandfather was the founder of those, um, straight after the, the war and, um, well, principally tyre businesses. And then dad took those businesses over in the early 70s. Um, and then from that, he was always interested in car racing. So he bought a Tirana XU1. That was his first race car in 1973. Um, he raced a L34 Tirana 1974 and 5, and then bought a, a Ford Capri from Barry Seaton. That's where Glenn and I become great mates. And um, and dad competed at Bathurst in 76, 77, and 83.
0: So he actually drove Bathurst three times?
1: Yeah, he did. He was a, in, in a rival brand because we're always a bit of, you know, we're a Holden family also. My grandfather bought Holden Utes in the early days and we were, you know, as I said, dad's first race car and, you know, we always had Statesmans and Rock Commodores and stuff. So it was definitely a Holden family. But um, the old man went to the dark side and drove a Ford Capri a few times at Bathurst. So not many people actually know that. They're good research.
0: That's outrageous that uh, he would be driving a Ford. Remember those first XU1s? <laughs> I, if, if Here we go, testing my memory again. I reckon one of the models that was very very successful selling-wise was painted canary yellow.
1: There were lots of weird colours in the day, wasn't there? And, and actually, <laughs> the brochures and stuff, John Crennan, who's a good friend of yours and mine, is, yep. was uh, very influential at Holden in those days. In fact, he was the general marketing manager in that, in that era. And... Um, and some of the colours and some of the promotional uh, aspects of how those cars were launched and and the hero colours, which that's, that was what they were called of the day, the hero colours were quite strange. They probably wouldn't get a run today, but there was certainly some weird well, – there was pink, there was green, there was um, a weird shade of blue, there was yellow, there was a stack of them. But the, the XU1 you talk about, which is really the one that Brock made famous, was the LJ XU1, which – uh was uh, a bit of a it was a bit of a David and Goliath because it was sort of a small underpowered six cylinder versus the might of the Ford factory team with uh, Fred Gibson and Barry Seaton and Alan Moffat and Bruce McPhee and all the superstars of the Ford era in that big GDHO Falcon V8 of the, of the day. So it was a there was a little Tirana that was able to knock them off and that was sort of the start of the dynasty for Brock.
0: And that was very much a Bathurst thing, wasn't it? Because I presume if you just sat those two cars side by side on Conrod Straight, the, the GDO HO wins every time, but the Torana the must have been more nimble uh, up the top, right?
1: And, well, 100%. And, and it was easier to drive in the mad, inclement conditions that Bathurst throws up, as you said, you know, it's a – it's a it's a three hour drive from Sydney, but it, it's actually got a lot more undulation and a lot more weather impact through the course of history. We've seen some pretty wild days there. So an XU one was a much nicer car to drive. Power to weight ratio, um, it was still reasonably good. But yes, it would get hosed off in a straight line by the by the big Falcons. And, and um, you know, as I said, there was guys like uh, Colin Bond, Peter Brock, um, Bob Morris. In the day, in the Rod Hodgson update car, I mean, there was a lot of really good pilots in XU ones in those days, and as I said, Brock um, was probably the master of uh, those conditions and, and getting the best from those little XU ones in those, in those
0: days. They must have nervously been looking in the rearview mirror, though, going down Conrod with a big GHO coming up <laughs> behind you.
1: <laughs> well, exactly right there, and, and it was. I mean, it, it, it's part of the great rivalry, Steve. That's the, that's the part that has really formed the tradition and the core values and the DNA of our sport. You know, those, those days of Brock versus Moffat, the days of Ford versus Holden, it's like Collingwood versus Carlton or Labour versus Liberal. It's a part of the social fabric of, of, of Australia. And, uh, those battles, you know, will go down in history as uh, you know some of the best times in Australian uh, touring car racing and supercar racing.
0: Yeah, I noticed you mentioned Collingwood first, but we'll, we'll move on from that. I mean, go back to the <laughs> early days. You mentioned Fred Gibson. How influential was he on getting you up and going? Oh, look, he he was great. He was, um, he was
1: a pretty good operator, Gibbo. You, know? you know, if you think about, um, we're just talking about history, and if you think about through the course of history, um, he was the Roland Dane. Of that era you know he had the best teams he had the best budget he had the best people uh, and he really he played a significant role in, in getting Glenn Seaton and, and myself well we, we moved from Sydney to Melbourne Glenn was a couple of years older than I and uh, he moved down uh, started driving for Fred and then I moved down in September 1986 when I was 19 uh, got 200 bucks a week and and worked in a workshop and uh, and and Basically, had to earn my stripes, and uh, Fred was was pretty much the guy who who gave me a, a start. And you know, in professional car racing, Steve, it's a little bit like being recruited to go and play AFL or or come through junior systems and getting into the NRL. If you're a, a young guy or girl, and you get drafted into driving a, a factory team, that's like your ticket to ride. You know, the, the factory team that was sponsored by the car company. That had the best funding and the best opportunities to go and win the races. That was that was a massive aspect in in my uh, my start and 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 the success that we had with Fred and Jim Richards.
0: Yeah, we all all need a mentor and we all need sponsors in that in that particular sport. Let's go back to your first Bathurst. You were driving a Nissan Gazelle, and am I right there? Yep. And yep. I read that there might have been some funny business where you actually pretended to be your co-driver to qualify the car because he wasn't <laughs> quite quick enough. Is that true?
1: <laughs> well, it's one of the great stories. It's only just been revealed the last sort of six months or so of it. <clears throat> There's a young guy who was a South Australian Nissan dealer who was driving with me. And and it wasn't really quite fair in terms of, you know, he wasn't in the car as much as I was. And, and that year it was under... I was in the under two-liter category, and under two-and-a-half liters were all the BMW M3s. So if you remember the superstars, that was a 1987 World Touring Car Championship race with um, the Ford Sierras and the BMW M3s and all the great cars from overseas and the great drivers. And the BMW M3s were really fast. In fact, Jim Richards ended up being the fastest of all the superstars, which is Manuel Ipiro, Roberto Ravaglia, Bruno Giacomelli, Johnny Giacotto, all the superstars of the day. And as they went faster and faster, the the percentage difference that we enjoyed at the start when they weren't going that fast, we were easily in the race. But as it turned out, my lap time was within the percentage uh, window, but um, uh, Grant Jarrett, who was driving with me, didn't. So I had to, Park it in the garage,
0: close mm. the roller
1: doors down, put yes. his helmet on, and jump in the car. Blaze out, do a couple of laps, get the lap time in that was going to be eligible for us to start the race, and then quickly park it back in the garage and get out of the car without anybody noticing. And uh, we got away with it, which is which is one of the. Uh, one of the
0: great stories. Not sure you did. A lot of people th- were trying to work out where Mark Scaife was when this car was actually going around <laughs> trying to do a lap and going in and out of the garage and slamming the door might have been a dead giveaway, I think.
1: <laughs> it might have been, but we were flying out of the radar then anyway. We weren't at the pointy end of the field, so they probably didn't get too much scrutiny, so we
0: got away with it. <laughs> not to be, not be, to be too unkind about your co-driver, but he sounds like one of those – motor dealers with a, a very large ego that might have maybe uh, outstretched his ability. Would that be fair?
1: Oh, look, he was actually a, a really good young guy. And and as I said, it was putting him in the deep end pretty hard because it, it, you actually had to drive the car bloody hard to, to do a lap time that was going to get us into the race. But, um, as I said, I felt sorry for him at the time because uh, it was a pretty pretty tough assignment, and uh, and it looked like we weren't going to be able to start. This. So my, my first proper drive there, um, it looked for a fair while like it, it wasn't it wasn't ever going to happen, It wasn't going to materialise. So uh, we had to stretch the rules a little bit.
0: It's very clever and uh, a very funny story. Let's talk about your Bathurst career. You won six times. Uh, what I find amazing when you look back at the stats that was spread over 19 years. So the first one in 1991 with Jim Richards in a Nissan, the last one with Craig Lowndes in a Commodore. You'd have to ask really, Mark, what other sport, aside from perhaps golf, can you have such success stretched over such a long time?
1: Yeah, look, it's one of the fortunate things about motorsport, Stephen, and I I think, you know, there's been so much talk, um, especially in the last 15 years or so, of what is the real tenure of a professional racing driver? And when do you sort of start to lose some of your vigor and your and your ability to be fast enough? And, and I don't really subscribe to, to what the, the modern scenario is because Jim Richards, you know, he won BAPIS with me in 2002 and he was 55. Wow, um, really? When I, when I drove with Peter Brock, at his first retirement in 1997, he was 53 and he led the race and broke the lap record. So for me, driving a touring car or or a supercar, um, if you're still fit, if you're still enjoying it, there's there's certainly a lot longer window than what people uh, understand. Uh, but on the other side, mostly, Steve, it comes, it comes from the fun. You know, I, 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 mean, I, I miss the competition every single day. And I, and I think sometimes I'd like to go and have another, you know, speed around. But it's one of those ones that if you, if you're going to do it, you've got to do it really well. And you've got to be in the cars a lot. You've, you've, you've got to have seat time and you, you've got to feel comfortable. And, and, you know, for Richard, for instance, to win it at 55, he was like, he was, he was driving, um, as as well as
0: ever um when uh, when we won in 2002 is that the oldest of anyone to to win bathurst uh, i think there might have been a couple of
1: older guys in the early days but um but uh in if you think in the last 20 years or more you know to be 55 and win australia's biggest race and 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 be able to make amends of you know the, the great line that he rolled out that was uh was, was was unbelievable in fact the next year i got him to come back and drive my second car at Holden racing team um and the next year he out qualified me at 56 <laughs> he qualified he qualified third on the grid in the top 10 shootout Wow. qualified third on the grid at 56 years of age so you know it, it, all, all the young blokes telling you, you need to be 25 couldn't be further from the truth.
0: Well, you won it back-to-back back with him, 91, 92, uh, in a Nissan. Take us to the podium during the great Richard Spray moment, which I think ranks uh, up there in the top 10 Australian uh, sporting moments of all time.
1: Oh, uh, Steve, honestly, uh, it, it, well, you've got to put it in context to begin with because it was one of the most dangerous days at Bathurst ever. I mean – At one stage, I actually ran into the safety car. I couldn't see, that's when the safety car was out. (laughs) You couldn't see anything. And at 300 kilometers an hour, because in those days, the cars were just as fast in a straight line as they are now. At 300 kilometers an hour, you couldn't see a couple of car lengths in front of yourself down Conrad Strait. Um, Denny Holm, the 1967 world champion died that day. (sighs) And it was for Jim. A really traumatic day. You know, it was, he was close friends with Denny Holm. Um, uh, he crashed out of the, Jimmy crashed out of the race because he was caught on slicks when a torrential downpour come down. I mean, Jim was sort of the rain master of, of the day. Um, crashed out of the race. Um, six cars were caught at the top of the hill at, at, at uh, Conrod. Race was red flagged and in, in a motorsport regulatory sense, the the race being stopped you go back to the previous lap who was leading and the race is stopped in accordance with who was leading the previous lap we were then the winner so when we were adjudicated the winner it was controversial dick johnson conveniently forgot the rule because he won the race in the early 80s under the same rule but he conveniently forgot it so he wound the the crowd up and uh and Neil Crompton, he was third. He was driving a GDR. He gave all the crowd the bird. So by the time Richard and I got to go out there, the crowd were feral, absolutely feral. And, and Jimmy was really emotional because, you know, obviously it was a pretty wild day. And, uh, when they started throwing beer cans and stuff out of Steve, it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, one of, one of the really funny things is that I was in the day Tuis were sponsoring the event and, and I was filling up my Tuohy's jacket. They gave us a, like a Top Gun jacket when you won. And I was filling up my jacket pocket with beer cans. And Jimmy said, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, I'm going to throw up your back. Full and ones he, or said, empty ones? Yeah, no, full ones. Yeah, I am going to throw up your back. And he said, no, nah, mate, 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 I'll handle it. I'll handle it. It'll all be fine. Thirty seconds later, he's called them all a pack of assholes. and beer cans come from everywhere, so it was
0: pretty wild. It seriously is one of the the great moments in Australian sport. I mean, how crazy brave? And I know, as a professional sportsman, you might bat this away. How crazy brave do you go, do you have to be to drive fast in the wet?
1: Um, it's sort of two aspects to it. Driving in the rain is easier than driving in the dry because the car's grip is lower and the car slides around more and it's effectively easier than driving in the dry. You get more warning. You get, you know, the, the car's a bit more like driving on the dirt. So so it's, it's effectively easier. The problem is driving in the rain is visibility one and standing water like puddles or running water like rivers of water coming across the track. So if you're on Conrad Strait, for instance, there's so much rise and fall that when you would top the last rise, the water would run across the road in rivers and you would hit that at 280 or 290 kilometres an hour and the car would burst into wheel spin and, and, and head itself sideways off the road.
0: So almost aquaplaning, right?
1: Well, but almost past aquaplaning. So when, when you, when you go into a big puddle of water, the car aquaplanes. But when you, you're hit by a river of water, it's not only aquaplane, but it obviously heads the direction of wherever the river's going. So, oh, my God, wow. it, it was – And
0: you can't see that, of course, can you?
1: Well, well you can't, because, and that's the problem. So when the visibility is so poor, you can't see what's in front of you, and, and you, you end up you, – you actually can't. All you can ever do is park the car on the crown of the road at the highest point and hopefully at the highest point it has the least amount of puddling and the least amount of um, river crossing so that's the only thing you can do
0: let's talk about peter brock i mean probably the biggest name still in your sport you replaced him in 1998 as the holden race team driver no pressure there
1: yeah, yeah look that that was great i mean the first part was driving with brock those final two races in 97 which again your friend of mine, John Crennan, drafted me in to, to do that and uh, we qualified pole at Sandown and Bathurst and uh, led Bathurst really easily. In fact, Craig Lowndes crashed out behind me in the early 50-lap time and we were driving around with our arm on the window. It was one of those days where we should have won it by by a lap um, and then had an engine failure. So um, it was one that got away. That would have given Brock his 10th win. So that... End of '97 was fantastic. Brock, sort of, sort of in a quasi way, he handed the baton over because he was so wrapped to be qualified you know, on pole and for him to lead the race. He broke the lap record at the start of that race in '97, and, and he and Larry Perkins actually had a great battle. So I, I was sort of I had his blessing, and then I obviously had John Crinan's blessing to replace him in '98. I didn't do a bad job in 98, but uh, with a heap of pole positions, a couple of wins, but I I, joined the team and a lot of that team used to work for me at Gibson Motorsport. So it wasn't the, the, the most beautiful of all atmospheres when uh, either those people had chosen to leave Fred's business and go to Holden Racing Team or I'd, or I'd chosen for them to leave. Um, so if I'd fired them, for instance, and then I went to drive for them <laughs> It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a very friendly atmosphere to begin with. So by the end of nineteen ninety eight, I sort of got them back on side. I was seriously contesting the championship in ninety nine. Battled with Lowndes to win the championship in ninety nine, and uh, and then I won it in uh, two thousand, two thousand and one, two thousand and two. So it was a you know it was a great it was a great era for me with uh, with
0: Holden Racing Cam at its best. Watching Peter up close, what made him so good? He's flamboyance. He. Um, he he was.
1: If you went and wrote a textbook on his driving style he, and his technique, you know the way he sat in the car, the way he steered the car. Um, there, it's a little bit like Muhammad Ali. People people say Ali's actual style wasn't very good, but his brilliance was just unbelievable. His hand speed and his ability to to move his head out of the way, and and clearly Ali. You know, was the best boxer of that era, and and similar for Brock. Brock, as I said, didn't have what I would call all of the the textbook techniques, but he's flamboyant, and his his raw innate ability was uh, was exceptional. He um, and especially if he was in the lead, Steve. I mean, he was a very very good leader. So if you if you <laughs> If you're in a race with him and he, and he was leading, he was bloody hard to beat.
0: And belief in himself. I mean, you and I, uh, I'm sure you've watched the the Ayrton Senna documentary, which is outstanding to watch. But uh, when the other drivers are talking about Ayrton Senna, they say the reason that they feared him was because he had extraordinary natural ability and he believed that God was on his side and so he could always win. Uh, he probably never did it textbook style either, but he was just such a talent.
1: Yeah, well, the actual technique, the driving technique, and and the application of Senna was was more, was more textbook. But but what what and what Brock and Senna and and all of the best drivers doesn't really matter where you are, whether you're in supercar racing or Formula One or whatever it is. Um, Schumacher, Senna are probably the best two examples. But the very best drivers, the reason they are the very best, not outside of their raw ability and that innate skill that you speak of. Is the, the ability to process the information. So when you're when and it's a lot like football in AFL or rugby league. If you think about watching Nathan Buckley or
0: um, Colin or Michael
1: again. Voss or James Hurd, they've got so much time. It's the same thing. If you if you watch Joey Johns or Bob Fulton or Wally Lewis or Laurie Daly, those guys they just look like they're in slow mo. It's like watching Rod, Rod, Roger Federer now. You know, you just watching him go, my god, how does he do that? Yeah, but the the ability to process the information for someone like Senna was extraordinary, and and that was the same for Brock. I mean, and, and I, I and I know from sort of personal experience that when you're driving really well, you can tell people what's going on with the car meter by meter. You, you, it's happening so slowly for you that honestly you can recall everything. You can tell them every single issue with the car. You remember every racing incident so clearly. It's it. it it's actually like a, almost an unfair advantage, and for those guys that you've uh, you know just spoken of, someone like a sinner, he was able to demonstrate that at the highest level.
0: I was on air the the afternoon that Peter lost his life at, in that rally in WA, and tragically mm. that same week we lost Steve Irwin to that uh, to that accident that he had off a boat up in Queensland. Can you remember where you were when you heard that Peter had passed away, and were you absolutely shocked that it that it would happen in that way.
1: Um, I, I can absolutely remember. I was I was having lunch with my wife Tony, um, who uh, is at Network Ten, and I was with Craig Kelly, having lunch in uh, in Turak Village, um, and we were sitting there. And then my phone went mad. Uh, the first phone call was a reporter from one of the radio stations. I think it might have been Six PR or something in in Perth.
0: Yep.
1: To say Mark. Uh, we've just heard that Peter Brock has passed away, and, and I, I'm like, I'm, my God. And I, I, I think I would have had 40 or 50 calls in, in the next hour. Um, and it was just extraordinary because there's a level of mortality, Steve, that, you know, it was very similar when Ayrton Senna died on May the 1st, 1994. Um, it was it was something you just you just sort of couldn't really understand because you you recognise the talent and the skill and the the ability that these people have um, and you just you just never thought of of them either being hurt in a car or certainly not being killed and uh, that day for for me with Brock that was really profound and, and 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 look I mean that was probably one of the most emotional Bathurst. Um, you know, I was headed up I was leading Holden racing team. The fans expected us to win for, for Brock. Um, and Craig Lowndes was driving for Ford and he was sort of Brock's protege, so everyone ex- expected him to win too. And I remember very clearly the before the start of the race, we were all in tears, you know, standing on the grid. So it was it was exceptional.
0: And I was yeah, you know, I was there for that Beths and Craig did win, didn't he?
1: Yeah, he didn't. Well, I had that drummer at the, with the start with the clutch, and uh, I was out within one kilometre. So that, that was must have one of most- really pissed you off. Oh, oh, oh that would be that will win the award for my worst day ever at Bathurst. But um, it was yeah, it was a weekend where we were fastest in every session with the shortest price favourites in Bathurst history, um, and uh, we were wink odds that day, which was.
0: Uh, did the helmet hit, hit was, the back uh, of the garage when you got out of the car?
1: Oh, honestly, Steve, I was just totally gutted. And I got back to the garage. I put my headset on and Jim Richards was in the other car. And I uh, I put the headset on and I, I said, um, let's, let's, let's try to get a result here for the factory team. And then Richo uh, gave the fence a bump coming out of the dipper. So we had both factory Holdens out of the race within the first stint, within the first 25 laps. So I said to Tony, "Grab a chopper, let's get out of here." Well, I was having a beer in Melbourne by about one thirty.
0: And tragically, uh, across that weekend, uh, there was a fatality at Bathurst on the Friday, if my memory's correct.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, you know, it is it is a mad sport. There's, there's times that things happen in our game that you know we uh, we've made massive improvements in terms of motorsport. And the, the safety of the cars and the circuits over a long period of time. If you think, <clears throat> you know, in the 50s and 60s, mortality rate in Formula One was just extraordinary. And I remember Jack Braddon said to me one day, he was standing with Fred, Frank Gardner and we were talking about the old days. And Jack said to me, he said, uh, or Sir Jack said to me, uh, Scafie, I didn't want to be the fastest, I just wanted to be the oldest. And
0: it's uh, <laughs> a very good uh, but, line. Uh,
1: it oh, a pretty good line, exactly.
0: I was reading about some of those previous accidents and uh, one of the drivers got badly injured when the fire extinguisher in the car came loose and hit him in the head.
1: Well, that was actually my um, teammate for my what was going to be my first Bathurst uh, in 1986. Peter Williamson had a big crash at the end of Conrad Strait and he went off over the last rise into the braking area uh, and wrote the car off. But, but that most of the, <clears throat> the injuries that... That Peter sustained was uh, the fire extinguisher coming loose inside the cabin of the car, and actually broke his jaw and knocked some teeth out and stuff. So yeah, so you, you're 100 percent right. I mean, but again, you know, there's so much of of those technology safety improvements that have been made. We're uh, obviously very lucky in, oh, in the modern era.
0: Those cars are so safe now. I mean, I can look at the I can uh, look at the image in my mind of Chad Mostert tipping his car on its roof up the top. Running down the fence, and he didn't suffer an injury. Really, I mean, minor injuries.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. The, the, the gear lever <clears throat> broke his broke his leg. But but honestly, in a crash like that, where the car almost went right out of the circuit, that was probably the most violent crash that we've seen at Bathurst for a long time.
0: Nearly hit a marshal, IP. didn't he?
1: Oh well, honestly, it was it was scary bad. It was one of those ones that you know, Neil and I were, were that was qualifying in two thousand and fourteen. We were um, fifteen, actually, two thousand fifteen, and um, we were calling qualifying, and we just could not believe the severity of the incident. And as you said, I mean, although he, you know, he did he did sustain some some injury, it wasn't anywhere near as bad as uh, as it looked.
0: This is on the record. We're talking uh, to the legendary Mark Skaife. You clearly like going fast. You dr- did you really drive a Malu Ute at two hundred and seventy seven kilometres an hour at the Woomera Rocket Range? Gee, <laughs> you picked some
1: highlights out, haven't you? Oh that, yeah, yeah, good research. Well, that was another Chrono idea. You said, "Let's break, let's break the world record in a Malu Ute." And <laughs> you funny, could have done it on the
0: here. Hume Highway. You didn't need to go to Woomera. <laughs>
1: Well, well, that's right. But there's this mad test facility out there in, in Rocketland where all the rocket launch stuff is on. And um, we had a couple of engineers go out there and do some testing and looking at what, what part of the road, et cetera, that we could use. And I arrived out there and I said to the two guys, the two engineers, one, one name was Ross Holder, who was my engineer way back in Nesson days, and another guy called Sam Davis, who was a HSV engineer working for John Crenham. They'd both done some sample runs on this particular bit of road. And I said, why don't you take me out and just sort of show me where it is. And it was this mongrel, sort of one-lane, bumpy, typical country road with big crown on it and cattle grids and all this shit. It was really, it was it was shocking. And I said to them as they were driving out there, I said, well, where, where's the road? Which, 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 which one are we going to use? Said, you're on it. Oh, no. I said, no, no, we're not. Anyway, as it turned out, 277k on that little bit of road—it it, it definitely kept my attention. It was—it was quite funny.
0: Well, when I read it was Woomera, I thought you must have been on a like a uh, an airport airstrip. Uh,
1: nah, no. Nah, oh, that's what I thought too. But when I got out there, it was a public road, effectively. It's within the Woomera facility, but it's—it's um, it's just like a little narrow country road. Which, um, if I showed you, Steve,
0: you'd go. Wow, that's pretty ordinary. Yeah, good yeah. luck for you doing that. I mean, most <laughs> Australians probably forget that uh, the land speed record was set out near there. Donald Campbell, said Donald Campbell, uh, set a world land speed record in a thing called Bluebird on Lake Eyre on a, on a salt plane. I once saw that car. I'm surprised yeah. it would have gone 60 kilometres an hour. It looked so dreadful.
1: Well, and, and look, I mean, a lot of the engineering things that, that go along with that, especially in those days, you know, the tyre technology was ordinary. Um, a lot of the suspension and, and chassis dynamics were ordinary, so I'm sure when he was doing those attempts, although the you know the basically those salt lakes were reasonably smooth, um, it wouldn't have been a very nice device. So uh, I, I often talk about those men being uh, being heroes uh, of the
0: day. You drove in Le Mans 24 hour. Alan Moffat once told me that he competed in that event and scared himself to death at night. It was foggy, dark. And the only way he could work out where the corner was that he saw the brake marking post and he just knew <laughs> that at that point turn left. <laughs> and I, I thought to myself, you, you're brave. How, what was Le Mans like?
1: Well, Moffat's, Moffat's uh, depiction of that is pretty, is pretty dead on. Um, it, it's a wild racetrack too in some areas. The Porsche curves are sort of the highlight of the circuit, but. The Mulsanne Strait, that's the fastest that I've ever been in a car. It was 345 kilometres an hour um, and of a night. And, and often um, it's it's rain affected or, or, or certainly weather affected. And um, it was wet in practice and uh, and I was blazing along there at 345 k, and not knowing where the road goes because obviously you're trying to learn this big, long circuit. Um, it, 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 it was... Um, I mean, I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Actually, I drove with a young Brazilian guy called Tommy Erdos and Julian Bailey, who was the Formula One driver used to drive for Tyrrell. And um, he was a very funny guy. He, he liked a, a beer afterwards, and uh, he was he was a really good bloke. So um, you know, I had a lot of fun. It was a, a Jaguar factory car of the day, and um, and it was one of the things you know sort of on your bucket list uh, of, of Professional race drivers, you know, do you want to go to Le Mans? You always, you always say yes.
0: Did you ever have an incident, Mark, where you thought, "I'm, I'm gone here. I might kill myself in this?"
1: Yeah, I had a big crash uh, at Eastern Creek um, in early 1995. It was probably my worst crash, but I really have no memory. I went off the road at the at turn one. And it was wet, and they they had the drag that compound, that solution on the road, which was like ice, and I, I went off the road, and I have no memory of, of going off the road nor of the accident. Um, so that was probably the worst worst crash. But <clears throat> the one I remember every single second of was the Nissan GTR in qualifying in 1990 at Adelaide. And uh, I come onto the back straight, Jim Ridges and I were battling. On the, the old F1 station, circuit. On the old, exactly. And it was where <clears throat> you come onto Decredible Terrace, onto the back straight quite a fast corner it was where Micah Hackenden had that really horrific crash uh, a few years on from that Um, anyway I come onto the back straight rode up onto the curb on the outside and it broke the bottom out of the wheel it hit the curb like sliding it broke the bottom out of the wheel and turned straight over on its roof at about 175, 180k and as it was sliding along on its roof it started wearing through the roof and into the helmet and and as it was sliding along, the weird thing was, Steve, you know, it was obviously upside down, and the harder I pressed the brake, it still sort of didn't slow down. So,
0: Funny, I, that. I finally,
1: yeah, exactly. So finally it hit the tyre wall. It bounced back out into the middle of the road, and I couldn't, once it stopped, I couldn't get out because the car had sustained so much damage that the door wouldn't open, and then all I hear is fire, fire, fire. So all the masters were coming over. The thing mm. was on a light. Um, and it took Peter Brock, Colin Bond and uh, a local Adelaide driver in a BMW called Joe Summeriva to actually stop, get out of the car and come and help me uh, to open the door to get out. But it was one of the most frightening things, um, that I ever, ever had in a car where I, I thought, It was upside
0: down and and on fire. I thought, poor, this is bad. That would have been terrifying. You started your media uh, career really at at seven. I mean, Channel 7, we have to give them credit, don't we? I mean, we we love Fox Sports and and the 10 network. But Seven and their technical coverage of Bathurst was world leading, wasn't it?
1: Oh, 100%. Those technical people of the day who originally did the uh, race cam, which Peter Williamson and Dick Johnson were sort of the best at, Commentating whilst they were driving. Um, The technology was, you know, race cam called. That was the the title for it in those days. And, um, and, and people like Mike Raymond, who was the head of sport of the day, who were, you know, instrumental, uh, Noel Brady, um, those, those people at seven of the day were, were really committed to the sport. You know, what I think at the end, Steve, we, you know, clearly we're saying at the moment, you know, that Fox and 10 are doing a really good job, but it's, it's, it's really about being committed to the sport, and for a long period there, Channel Seven was, you know, the home of motorsport in this country, and and it really wasn't until David White come along in Channel Ten days that he was able to grab the rights and and then use it as a, a, a key product platform for Channel Ten, and and then in more in modern times now, you know, Fox has become, you know, the motorsport home with with all the other motorsport that's on um, in in parallel. So, uh, you know, all all I probably ever expect, and as a motorsport lover, as as you are, all you ever expect is for the host broadcast group to be as committed as they can be and and for them to do the best job of the coverage.
0: What's the best circuit? um, And obviously Bathurst is the most famous and we wait for that each year. It's, it's extraordinary, but what's the best racing circuit that you go to now? Is it, uh, Gold Coast? Is it still Adelaide? What's your favourite? Is it the new Tail and Bend circuit? I know you've been involved in in a, uh, designing a lot of these tracks.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's funny that I, I think one of the great things about our racetracks and one of the things we try to do when we do the design is probably a little bit like Greg Norman does when he walks into a, you know, a field and someone's saying, how, how, how do we make a good par 3 or par 4 or par 5 here? How do you use the natural contours and how do you how do you try to get the best from the local topography and elevations, etc. cetera. You, you've got to try to get some character. And I loved Sydney Olympic Park and Homebush. Um, I, I went around the there with
0: uh, Shane Van Gisbergen, and, and that blind corner, the left-hander, that, that scares the hell out of anybody. You did, well, a, exactly. you did a good that job with that.
1: that. Yeah, well, that was – and it looked on paper like a pretty boring racetrack, but it had – great elevation change and real challenges and the drivers loved it and and the same thing really with Newcastle um so I, I think in terms of temporary circuit we try to just build in as much character and as much difficulty and make it as hard as it can possibly be leaving the bumps etc in situ so that it's a challenge for the drivers and you uh, know race tracks are, are supposed to put a smile on your face and that's what um that's what those ones do for me you know clearly Bathurst is it but I love Phillip Island. I mean, I, as a permanent racetrack, I can't think of a better racetrack in the world in terms of how much the cars slide around and how much of a challenge that is for the drivers to uh, to do a really good lap there. If, you, if you've done a great lap of Phillip Island, it's it, up there with Bathurst is one of the real tests for for, for man and machine.
0: That must—that's a big wrap. I mean, you must be so happy uh, just finally, as a Central Coast boy, born and bred, that. You got to race into Newcastle because I've said this to you before. I think one of the things about your sport that is sensational is above all sport in Australia, you take it to regional Australia. We took Bathurst, we took Newcastle, Townsville, Winton. I mean that 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 spreads your fan base out, and and that's obviously central to, to the success of V8 Supercars, right? That, that's a hundred percent. I mean
1: that's something we, that we are. We've worked really hard on. The one that I I'd probably regret the most is losing Canberra. Um, was a, that was a political change of government that led to uh, us not being able to continue on with our race, but that, that racetrack we had between the two parliament houses.
0: Little green. That, little green up there for.
1: Yeah, just a fraction. Just a <laughs> the fraction sport. there. Um, but, but, but also, it, it, what that did is it was able to allow us to boast that we went to every ter- every, every state and territory, yeah. um, and and one of the great things about our sports Steve, is that we are pretty much truly national, and we are uh, pretty much non-seasonal. You know, we start in late February, we finish in early December, which which means that we we tend to be able to keep a large cross section of Australians engaged in the sport throughout the season. And your your comment, I mean, I, I think Newcastle is the best example of regional Australia because clearly Townsville's been fantastic for us, and a lot of our other, I mean, Bathurst. You think over two hundred thousand people uh, in a little country town, three hours west of Sydney is a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool stat. But Newcastle to have the patronage that we have there, and show off a part of the world. I mean, I had mates in Melbourne go, "Where's Newcastle?" You know, it, it was it was almost sort of Geelong-like for people that were outside of, of Victoria and uh, for us to be able to put that event oh, on and be able to make it such a, a success and those images of the... Oh, sitting there watching a ship planes, come in through
0: yeah. the... Well, you've got a V8 <laughs> it's a, it's, supercar going past a, a massive coal transporter.
1: And, and, and a virgin plane flying over the top. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't get any better. So, so uh, yeah, I think to reiterate your point, that... that regionality and support is, is heartland V8 Supercar and, uh, and that's been a great, a great success.
0: Mark Scaife, it's been great catching up. Thank you very much. Thanks, Steve. All the best. That was motorsports superstar Mark Scaife, now on air with Fox Sports. On the Record episodes with Sam Newman, Kerry-Ann Kennelly, Rita Panahi, and Ross Greenwood are available where you get your podcasts.